In many Caribbean countries, students are taught to be so-called ideal Caribbean persons. This phenomenon is of interest to some educational researchers because this discourse defines a Caribbean person instead of, say, a Jamaican person or a Haitian person. What this suggests is that regional social imaginaries have usurped the long-held need by state governments to cultivate national imaginaries through public schools. So why has there been an increasing emphasis on regional-level collaboration and reform initiatives in education that have resulted in an attempt to build regional social imaginaries? My guest today, Dr. Tavis Jules, an assistant professor of cultural and educational policy studies at Loyola University, Chicago, argues that the rise of the Caribbean educational space was driven by various regulations constructed by supranational organizations and institutions and then implemented at the national level. He studied this convergence by comparing the discourse in policy documents at the regional and national level. Tavis's most recent book, Neither World Polity Nor Local or National Societies, Regionalization in the Global South, the Caribbean Community, was published by Peter Lang Press in 2012. Today I speak with Tavis about his latest article on the Caribbean educational policy space, which was published in the November issue of the Comparative Education Review. Tavis Jules, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, by way of introduction, how did you become interested in educational regionalization, uh, specifically within the Caribbean educational space? That's a, that's a pretty interesting question. Uh, educational regionalism is a concept in which I... I coined to uh, explain the political project of regionalization and the influence of the political project upon national educational systems. I was born and raised within the Caribbean, and I was a product um, of our forefathers struggling for a different way to achieve economic development. And so uh, from the outset, they were interested in achieving development because they're small island states or small states um, through different forms and foras and regionalism uh, ultimately became the best way in which they thought uh, that these small states can band together and achieve um, this economic might, uh, this great sense of modernization. And so in me thinking about the impact of regionalization upon national educational systems, it got me thinking if it's a very distinctive or special form of regionalization that exists uh, within the Caribbean community CARICOM and the 15 member states that make up this community and the five associate members. And so as I was thinking about how, when, where, and why um, political projects are constructed and they, the ways through which they're constructed and why they're constructed, uh, it started uh, getting me to think about um, who is regionalization for, what are the goals and objectives of regionalization, but more importantly, what are them within the perspective of what we refer to as the functional spaces. And these functional spaces are the space inhabited by, um, sorry, the space inhabited by uh, education, security, health, um, etc. And so in coming up with the term 
educational regionalization, it was a way for me to rethink the political space in which education exists um, and how that is aligned to educational regionalism, which is the empirical process of economic flows within these geographic spaces. One of the terms that we often hear when we think of Caribbean educational space is this notion of the ideal Caribbean person. Um, how did this conception emerge? Uh, the conception of the ideal Caribbean person emerged in 1997 at the regional level. Uh, at that point in time, regional leaders across the Caribbean were trying to think about the attributes in which the Caribbean person, regardless of uh, where they're from, whether it's the island state or they're from the, the coastal areas of Belize or uh, Suriname or Guyana, regardless of where they're coming from, um, what it is that makes them uniquely Caribbean and how do they identify uh, themselves as, as a Caribbean person. And so it was a push uh, in the mid-90s as a way to um, bring a more human-centered approach to economic regionalization after the project uh, had stalled and remains stalled uh, to this day in in many different realms. Um, and so they came up with these core attributes uh, that each citizen um, or each Caribbean national, regardless of which island state or mainland territory they were coming from, should have. And so educational systems were uh, expected to gear their, their respective citizens um, in ways that allow them to exhibit these attributes. And so the attributes are well-rounded attributes in the sense, you know, um, to be uh, gender-friendly, to be fair, have a sense of responsibility to one's community and one's environment and and so forth. And um, national governments were the ones responsible for ensuring that their citizens had these attributes. And the ultimate goal for the ideal Caribbean person is that that person can work and live in any of the 15 member states of CARICOM based on the free movement of labor under the Caribbean single market economy that came into 2000, that came into effect in 2006. So it was really an idealized concept um, that has been growing, and, and, and we see that, and the idea is, is that wherever you come from, you first and foremost a Caribbean person, and then you're a national of a specific territory. And how did that? Um, how did the ideal Caribbean person manifest uh, inside a particular education system, inside a national education system? Is there an example that you could point to? Uh, well, yes. There, there are several manifestations of the ideal Caribbean citizen in in national documents, and and so what has happened? Um, and I think here's perhaps one of the major arguments of the paper. Um, is that whether or not the regional has replaced the international. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to discuss that uh, further. But in looking for specific instances of the ideal Caribbean person within national educational policies, um, we find them because policymaking within the Caribbean, uh, even though it's made at the regional level, implementation is um, left up to national governments. Um, and so the way in which Caribbean educational policy is made and the space in which it inhabits is very different from the European space, whereas in the European space, uh, that's made primarily or policy decisions are made primarily 
on uh, supranationalism within the Caribbean spaces, even though something is made at the regional level, it doesn't necessarily guarantee uh, adoption at the national level because the principle of sovereignty still holds sway among these small members. And so the manifestation of the ideal Caribbean citizen in national policy documents represent uh, two things. It represents either the discursive use of random regional concepts that we can find nationally, or it means that national governments were and are actually taking it seriously as they think about moving towards deeper economic integration uh, within CARICOM. And so often times, what I found is that many uh, national policies were also very explicit as to how they plan on creating citizens who can be national in their identity uh, regional in their scope and work ethic, um, and global um, in the sense of having a certain set of skills. Right. So the, the the discourse that gets adopted by these national policy documents um, is is perhaps forming some sort of a consensus around the the ideal Caribbean person, but the material practice can be dramatically different inside classrooms, inside school systems. Is that correct? Uh, it, it, it is correct because at the heart of the concept of the ideal citizen is that it speaks to values uh, that are very extremely broad. Um, you know, it talks about this idea of psychologically secure, um, this sense of having a strong uh, sense of ethnicity, religion, and other form of diversities. It, it says, you know, that, that students should be environmentally astute and they should be responsible and accountable to family and community. You should have a strong work ethic, you know, be um, ingenious and have an entrepreneurial outlook, uh, respect cultural heritage, and exhibit multiple literacies and critical thinking. And more importantly, they should be able to apply uh, science and technology when needed. And so you can see it's these, these are very broad areas uh, that they're talking about. But the, the goal behind having the concept or the notion of an ideal Caribbean person is that ultimately, regardless of which island you end up working on, living on um, across the region, there's something else that binds you together um, that makes you uh, Caribbean. Uh, a second reason for this is that uh, it's the understanding that Caribbean development is no longer something that is national um, in scope and focus. Uh, it's also something that is regional. And I think over the past 20 years or so, uh, the region has started slowly embracing the idea that a Guyanese of uh, with a Trinidad mother and a Jamaican father working in the Bahamas um, is ultimately working towards uh, bettering the region as a whole. Um, and so that person is not just seen as, um, as a Guyanese who has um, migrated or immigrated to that country and causing a brain drain. In essence, what, what this concept does is it says, irregardless of where you're from, um, and your historical background, the fact that you stay in the region and the fact that you're willing to develop the region, uh, it means that by developing one island, all the islands um, develop at the same time. In, in your opinion, is, is the concept problematic in any ways? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very, uh, very good question. I think that the concept is problematic 
in some aspects uh, because like much of the discourse uh, across the region it is only used uh, to legitimize existing um, policy decisions or new policy decisions. So currently across the region, uh, they're working on the new human resource development strategy um, as to what uh, human resource development would look like. And the core concept that they're drawing upon is this idea of developing ideal Caribbean nationals. On the one hand, it's easy to talk about developing the ideal Caribbean person because there's one centralized unit that administers the post-secondary school uh, exam, which is the Caribbean Examination Council, and they have been around uh, forever. And many of the national systems, you know, look to uh, CXC, uh, the Examination Council, for guidance um, in terms of their curriculum and development. And so over the past few years, uh, CXC has been pushing um, how to teach or how to educate for the ideal Caribbean person. Uh, so that's been the positive side of it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, slowly the region is also recognizing uh, that there is more external influence um, uh, that is coming into the region that young people are starting to identify with. And not many young people can identify with being or being seen as an ideal Caribbean person. Um, and so often you get notions of, uh, of global citizenship or global mindedness come into conflict with developing the ideal Caribbean person, given how close the region is both to South America and to the U.S. And... You, you talk about how um, nations have retreated, in a sense, to the regional level compared to embracing globalization. Um, can you talk a little bit about this idea of the gated global, as you call it? Yeah, that's a, um, this is a, a, a very um, important concept. Um, the idea of the gated global, in simple terms, simply means the... Uh, retreat towards protectionism and more the retreat towards uh, trading among states uh, within a same geographic area. Uh, the, the notion of the gated global starts off with a problematique uh, that recognizes that globalization as we know it has paused. Um, it has paused in its sense that it is it is stagnated and I think people are frustrated about the returns um, that globalization has not brought. And one of the global trends uh, that we're seeing, and this, and the trend has more to do with the fact that in the past uh, 10 years, there have actually been more regional uh, preferential trading agreement or more regional trading agreement, RTAs, uh, that has been signed at the regional level than we have had at the global level. And so what this means is that you have a proliferation of new either custom unions or single market unions or economic unions uh, that are forming where member states um, or where individual countries are members to several of these economic blocks. And so what I am seeing is this Porsche one within uh, what I'm seeing is the Porsche of globalization. And I'm also seeing that more and more uh, regional trading agreements are being made at the 
regional level and not so much at the international level. And so I would say with this rise towards uh, protectionism, uh, we're seeing the rise of the, the gated global. Oh, sorry, the gated regional. The gated regional, right. Um, and you, you use re- regime theory to kind of uh, uh, help explain this difference. Can you um, give an introduction to regime theory and, and the term that you coin trans-regional regime? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, one of the earlier uh, kind of battles I was having with myself is um, how do you describe the the form of policy making uh, that you see at the regional level? How do you explain the sense of policy making, and and what does it mean to education? And so it's I think for me I started out from the perspective of trying to ask myself, um, uh, does regionalization, which is the political process, the political project, um, as compared to sorry, let me rephrase that. Um, I started out with the assumption of asking myself, does regionalism, which is a political project, influence regionalization, which is an imperial process? And how do I explain this influence upon national educational systems, if at all uh, there is an influence? And in trying to understanding the impact of the region upon the national, one of the things it also got me thinking about is, does the regional affect the national more than the international affect the national? And so this got me trying to figure out how am I able to to conceptualize this and then then stumbling across regime theory, um, which basically define a regime as a set of principles, norms, rules, and decision-making procedures around which actors' expectations converge in any issue area, it allowed me to be able to, to explore which level, either the international or the regional level, is more impact, is more impactful upon the national level. Um, and in doing so, I, I took the definition of regime theory, and I, and I looked at much of the work on how a regime has been defined. And in many instances, regimes were often defined in uh, in relation to talking about organizations and the, the various levels of organizations. And I sought to apply this concept uh, to a regional institutional organization, the Caribbean community. And I started to think about how it is that this organization is functioning from a regional perspective. And the first thing that I realized is that uh, the Caribbean community CARICOM even though it has the same aims and uh, scope as the European Union, it functions very differently from the European Union because it does not have this sense of a supranational authority. Um, and that's one of the, the main deficits of the Caribbean community. It's, um, it maintains this archaic system of a one country, one vote that protects um, its sovereignty. And as part of that, it, it specifically states that Policies adopted at the regional level does not have the direct implementing force at the national level until national governments ratify it or accede to it um, through the national legislatures, which is very different from the European Union. And so in 
in trying to understand what that structure means for national educational system, um, I applied this concept and came up with this idea of a, of a trans-regional regime. And in defining a trans-regional regime, they, the main focus that I had um, in my thinking at that point in time is how do I talk about something that is, that is vastly different uh, from the European Union, but yet at the same time, it holds so much promise. Let's take a break. Have you enjoyed the shows on educational privatization? Have questions or opinions you want to share? Join us for a special webinar on November 17th at 7 p.m. GMT. Frank Adamson, Chris Lubienski, and Tamazin Cabe will join us online to discuss their research on educational privatization and commercial lobbyists in more depth and answer your questions. Space is limited to the first 100 guests, so please RSVP by sending an email to gesig.cies at gmail.com. The webinar is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society, with support from Drexel University's Global and International Education Program. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Tavis Jules about educational regionalization in the Caribbean educational space. Um, you were just speaking earlier about uh, the use of trans-regional regime theory, um, and I just wanted to know, could you give us an example of educational regionalism uh, from your research that uh, can exemplify the regime theory that you talk about? Uh, sure, Will. When I think of an example of a trans-regional regime, the one that comes to my mind immediately is the, it's CARICOM, and so I defined uh, trans-regionalism partly to fit within the unique structure of CARICOM uh, because CARICOM is it's so distinctive and it's, it, we can spend hours talking about it, but it's so distinctive in the sense that they, the broader organization with 15 members also have a sub-organization called the Organization of Eastern Caribbean Currency, Eastern Caribbean Countries, um, which has its own currency, uh, judicial mandates, its own coordination, uh, etc. And and that sense of um, of a small being part of a larger whole is not only what makes CARICOM different, but it's also what lends itself towards uh, being seen as a trans-regional regime. And I, when I think of a trans-regional regime and thinking of others, I think the first thing uh, that I that I look at is defining it and and. I define a trans-regional regime as a large interregional organization, one whose members are sovereign countries contributing to the development um, of that through various regional mechanisms and processes. Uh, I think of it as an organization whose main goal is to facilitate the exchange of policy ideas, but it also acts at a multi-level governance um, perspective. It also has the ability to respond uh, to national, regional, and uh, transnational economic processes. But at the same time, its, its common goal is to create a region 
and policies and frameworks that not only benefits its member states, but it also provides a sense of common institutional um, frameworks, consensus building, uh, etc., that ultimately coordinate the expectations of all the actors uh, involved. Um, and so that is what I think of a, of a transregional regime. And, and so I think from that definition, not only can we talk about CARCOM as a, as a transregional regime, we can also talk about um, uh, about ASEAN uh, as well. And, and here the, the main crux of the argument as to, to what makes a transregional regime, um, it's its ability to coordinate uh, multi-level processes that are foreign, regional, or domestic um, at the same time to be able to, to buffer it from the external influences. And hence the gated regional. And hence the gated regional, correct. Right. Um, switching gears here, um, can you talk a little bit about your methods? How did you uh, approach researching uh, the Caribbean educational space? Uh, that's a, that's a, a, very good, a very good question. Uh, methodologically, um, uh, for this paper, I drew extensively on... Uh, national educational policies uh, from across the 15 countries of, of CARICOM over a time period uh, of 1990 um, all the way to, to present. Uh, in addition to, to doing a content analysis, I also did um, interviews with people who had been working at CARICOM from since 1990 had been working in education and had ultimately been able to see the evolution of uh, national policy making from the regional perspective. And so one of the things I started with methodologically uh, is, as I said previously, I was interested when I was doing this study, I was interested in finding out whether or not the regional le level was more influential upon national policy making or whether the international level was more, um, more effective or more influential upon the uh, national level. And so in making a distinction between seeing which level was more influential, one of the things I started off uh, by, by looking at, and uh, it's one of the methodological techniques I developed um, for this article, is by trying to measure what is referred to as a quality reference or a, a congruence, um, and that is the establishment of a valid statement that exists in one document and measure to see whether or not that statement exists in another document. So I'll give you uh, an example. So methodologically, we had three uh, characteristics. The first was we collected all national educational policies from the 15 member states of CARICOM from 1990. We collected all regional policies uh, from CARICOM itself, there's only been one regional educational policy ever made uh, from the regional level, and that was done uh, in 1993, and it's still in use at the regional level. And then I used 1990 as the benchmark and collected uh, education for all, so the, the outcomes and the goals for education uh, for all. And what we did is to look and see um, when we read national documents, when we read the regional document, when we read the international document, um, who was making the most reference uh, to what? So were national documents referencing more regional themes, ideas, and policy frameworks, or 
for national documents measuring more internationally international frameworks, uh, themes, and uh, policy perspectives. Um, so is CARICOM more than a discursive regime? Since you've been looking at policy documents mainly and looking at how the discourse is working in terms of these quality references, I think a critique that could come up is that, in a sense, you're missing the material reality of what's actually going on in these different educational spaces by, by all means and I, I think that's a that's a very valid uh, question will and it's, it's also a very valid criticism that I can see coming up uh, one immediate response uh, I have to that is that um, in thinking about the the manifestation of um, of discursive patterns, uh, one of the broader outcomes, um, or one of the broader ways I, I sought to conceptualize this study, um, goes back to, I think, one of the, the most simplest questions uh, uh, in development. And I think that is whether or not all, uh, sorry, that is whether or not all countries go through the same stages of development. Um, and so Rostow tells us that countries go through uh, traditional, they move from being a traditional society, then at some point in time they take on their precondition for takeoff, then they take off, then there's the drive towards maturity, and ultimately they're in the age of high mass consumption. And for me, what I was interested in understanding is whether or not development was this linear process to all countries have to follow these meticulous steps that uh, Rostow expounded in the 1960s, or can it be that countries can jump into the development process at any point in time along the way, and they can move in and they can move out of the development process? Um, and in linking that back to um, a potential uh, criticism of the work um, is that, yes, uh, I think that countries can move in and out of development process. And, and what I think the paper argues is that because if we, if we look at, at the development process from the discursive level, we can see that the ideas are all the same. We can argue uh, that there's a sense of... Um, of commonality, we can even say that we we might have a sense of educational uh, isomorphism. Uh, but the way in which that isomorphism comes about, I think it's very different from the way in which uh, institutionalist theory within our field has argued that isomorphism comes about. And the difference is is that when we look at the various policy cycles. Um, in which different educational systems are situated, we find that the mechanisms, or what I talk about, the policy tools, at which they seek to employ during different policy cycles. Not only do they do those tools change, um, but in many instances they build upon the, the pre-existing tool uh, that they that they've had before. Um, and so I would say because of that, even though I measure it at the discursive level, it still speaks heavily to implementation and practice because we see this sense of, um, of countries continuing to, to build upon the, uh, the, the past while thinking about the future. You've said that your research question, um, kind of beginning through this whole project, uh, was about trying to understand if the region has more influence on the nation uh, than the international. Uh, and after doing all of this research, what are your conclusions? 
Uh, I think that the, the basic conclusion uh, that I have at this point in time uh, is that, yes, um, globalization as we know it has paused. And uh, two, there has been a retreat towards the regional level. And with the retreat towards the regional level, um, yes, I would say at this juncture, um, the regional level has a more significant impact uh, upon the international level. And, and, and I say uh, that by speaking to the regional level, I would say within the Caribbean, uh, South America, Central America, um, and the ways in which they defined uh, themselves. I think the the point that I'm making uh, as to why the regional level is been um, so is been more impactful than the international level is is that currently as we stand, uh, that part of the world is being neglected. It's not getting the type of uh, conversations from the the West that they would like to get as the U.S. continues to pivot towards Asia. And over time, what these uh, countries have collectively have done, they have sought to re-envision the various type of regional hemispheric um, trading blocks uh, that exist. And so we have both old trading blocks uh, that exist, such as, um, such as Ascaricum, uh, but we've also seen the proliferation of uh, of new of new trading blocks uh, such as um, Alba, uh, we've seen the rise of uh, Unisur, uh, we've seen the rise of Silac. Uh, these are all new trading blocks that have established within the last five years, and they all have the the similar mandates as to uh, deeper uh, economic integration or the ability for free movement of labor and skills across these various spaces. Um, And so I would say that now the regional level is more influential than the international level because uh, the sense of of being able to identify with your your neighbors, um, being able to see concerns similarly, um, I think nation states are are really starting to relate to that. And they're saying, well, the international can't really teach me anything. And the, the good the international is only good for uh, for one thing, and that is um, aid money. You have been educated in the Caribbean space uh, and now have gone on to research it. What are some of the biggest surprises that you've uncovered in this process? I think one of the, the biggest surprises uh, that I've encountered uh, during the, the process as a whole, and that is um, having lived and um, and worked and, and having a significant amount of my education um, within the Caribbean educational policy space, um, uh, is that the functional aspects of regionalization um, work more than the economic aspects of uh, regionalization. And, uh, and that means uh, traditionally uh, regional entities such as, as, as CARICOM have... Um, uh, been criticized by pundits as being a place where people just go and they talk and they talk and nothing happens. So you don't see the the fruits of um, of of regionalism. Of regionalism. And I think for me, the biggest surprise that I had was how much the the functional aspect, uh, what we refer to as the non-economic aspect of uh, regionalism exists and it's propelled across uh, uh, the region um, in the sense that um, it makes concepts such as the ideal Caribbean citizen uh, problematic, but it also helps to 
maintain a, a core sense of culture and identity and heritage uh, with those concepts. And, uh, and it also helps or also has helped me to understand um, why it is that uh, I think Caribbean people continue to move, uh, the reasons for them to move, but also the, the type of um, rich culture and an ancestry uh, that exists there that, that continues to, to flourish in light of the, the problems of economic integration. And I, I think that is one of the reasons why I, I saw it as a way to, to capture this discursive space, but also trying to show that that over time, even though the space um, e, uh, um, e evolves over time, um, the one core thing that runs through the space is a functional cooperation. And so when I talk about uh, regionalism, regionalism as a political process um, and regionalization as just a, a a tool to be used. I think I'm, I'm able to see that uh, through functional levels that they've that they've made headway um, in these fields. Tavis Jules, thanks for joining Fresh Ed. Thanks for having me, Will. Dr. Tavis Jules is assistant professor of cultural and educational policy studies at Loyola University Chicago. His latest article, "Educational Regionalization and Negated Global: The Construction of the Caribbean Educational Policy Space." can be found in the November issue of Comparative Education Review. Next week, I speak with Marianne Larson about new spatial thinking in educational research. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. If you want to highlight your research on Fresh Ed or give us feedback on the show, please email us at gesig.cies at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Like what you heard on the show today? Please be sure to review and subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.